Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. You may be seated. We have what has been foreshadowed for a number of weeks now. As we have seen the progression of events, as Judas has plotted to uh, have Jesus arrested, he has plotted to betray Jesus, and now he has ultimately accomplished that very thing. He brings these uh, men, these guards, these, this crowd from the chief priests and the elders, and they come and they arrest Jesus. And they lead him away, and Jesus goes. He goes away alone. He goes away ultimately to be put on trial, falsely convicted, and killed. As we think about this text, especially as we think about it to the end of the year, and the closing out of this year, and all that has happened uh, this year in our church, and in maybe your life, and in the world, and we think about the relationship that we have with God, the, the end of the year and the new year is a time of reflection. A lot of people will make commitments when they come to the end of this week, and January 1st they're going to do certain things, they're going to, um, they're going to promise certain things, they're going to have certain New Year's resolutions, and they're going to try to do this or do that better. I think at some point maybe all of us have have done that. Uh, You know, the big one, hey, we're all going to lose weight. We just finished Thanksgiving and Christmas. We we ate to our hearts. We're content. We ate all of these dessert things or whatever. And uh, now, somehow, this flip in the calendar is going to cause us to reinvent our lives and become better, healthier people. And that lasts, you know, several days sometimes. We're going to do things differently. You know, the new year gives us that attitude. But often that's not what happens. Oftentimes we find that we don't actually do things any differently than we already were. We fall back into the same routines. And we come to this passage, and it should startle us to think about how when our lives do become routine, 
we can believe ourselves to be something different than we are. When our lives become routine and we're not evaluating ourselves, especially when it comes to our spiritual condition, we can get into a problematic place in our relationship with God. As we look at this text, we have the ultimate act of betrayal that we read about in the Scriptures. We have an instance where a person who had followed Christ closely turns from Him and ultimately betrays Him to His death. I think in part Judas does this if we look at it from the human standpoint because he has a problem with his spiritual condition. We understand, as Jesus reminds us of later on in this passage, that that God is going to accomplish His will and His purpose. But Jesus has just told Judas that while that's going to happen, Judas is ultimately very responsible. As a matter of fact, Jesus told him at the Last Supper it would have been better if you had not been born than to have betrayed Christ. But Judas has an issue in his spiritual condition. He has a problem. He has a a lack of faith or he has a lack of understanding. Whatever it is that has caused him to do this, Judas is responsible for his actions. So as we come to the end of the year and we're thinking about the year ahead, it is a good time for us to step back and evaluate our spiritual condition. It would be good for us as we go into 2016 to have a firm grasp of where we are in our relationship with Christ. Maybe this morning you do not have a relationship with Christ. It would be such a good way to start out the year by having a relationship with Him. If you do not know Christ this morning, if you do not have a relationship with Him, today would be an excellent day to turn from your sin and follow Christ. But many of you, most of you, have a relationship with Christ. You you follow Him. you, You know Him. You've turned from your sin. You've repented and you believe. But this is a good time as we come to the end of the year to reflect back and think about the relationship that we have with Him. Because we know that the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father can always be stronger. And we also know that we take responsibility in that relationship. You have responsibility in your relationship with Christ. You didn't do anything to enter into that relationship. You had no ability to gain a relationship with Christ. But since He has come close to us and called out to you and saved you from your sin, you're now in a relationship with Him and you have the ability to strengthen that relationship. I think we learn some things from Judas and what he does here in betraying Christ that should be things we consider when it comes to the relationship we have with Jesus. Because by considering these things, it helps put our relationship with Christ in perspective. We like to think that we would never be like Judas matter of fact, I've met many Christians that, that 
believed they wouldn't be like any of these disciples. That somehow they would do so much better than them. That they would listen so much better. That they would follow so much better. That they would have a better relationship with Christ than these disciples who personally walked with Him had. And yet Judas is a good example of how someone who walks with Jesus can fall away from that relationship, how that relationship can be strained, how it can be messed up. So let's look at these things, four of them this morning. To think about what is going on in Judas' life and how Christ responds to Judas and all of those who are there as they come to arrest him. First, as we look in the first verse of this section, in verse 43, Judas comes with this group immediately. As a matter of fact, we remember, if you remember back to last week, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been praying and the other disciples have been falling asleep and, and just simply not engaging in prayer, whereas Jesus is praying in great distress. And so after the third time of coming to Peter, James, and John and finding them asleep, he, he tells them that it's time to go. In verse 42, he says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so immediately after that, immediately after saying this in verse 43, while he was still speaking, so in other words, he's talking to them, and here comes Judas and uh, this other group. Uh, Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. One of the most heart-wrenching parts of this verse is when Mark tells us again, reminds us again, that Judas came one of the twelve. He's still speaking, Jesus is, immediately he's still speaking, Judas comes one of the twelve. Now, most of you probably know this, but if you don't, the twelve is Jesus' inner circle of disciples. The twelve was a, a specific group that Jesus had set apart. Now, within that twelve, there's Peter, James, and John, and, and Jesus has an even more in-depth relationship with them. But, but these twelve are the people that Jesus invested in most. They're the ones that followed him for the longest. They're the ones that went with him wherever he went. They're the ones that he entrusted things with. They're the ones who got to see the, the great miracles. They're the ones who got to participate in the ministry. These were his best friends. And the Bible reminds us, and it does so at several points, that when Judas came to betray him, that he was one of the twelve. This wasn't some guy who had no stake in the ministry that Jesus was performing. This was not some random guy that got mad at Jesus about something and went and betrayed him to the religious leaders. This is one of the guys who he had the closest relationship with. The one who saw his miracles. This is one of the guys in the boat when he's walking on the water. This is one of the guys in the boat where instead of walking on the water, he just speaks out to the storm and it stops. This is that guy. He had seen all of these things. 
He had been a participant in the ministry of Jesus, and yet he is the one who Mark 14.43 tells us was coming to betray him. Jesus says in verse 42, my betrayer is here. And then Judas is the one who walks in. We should not miss the gravity of that situation. Oftentimes, and we still do, we don't like Judas. Obviously, there's a good reason why we don't like Judas. He was a bad guy. He did a terrible thing. He did a thing that Jesus promised he was going to be judged harshly for. But we should not miss the fact that he was one of Jesus' core disciples. So why does that matter to us? As we evaluate our relationship with Christ, as we kind of look on what has happened for the year, as we look on what is coming in the year ahead, why does it matter? Well, we need to remember that being a part of the group is not what saves us. Being a part of the group is not what saves us. If there was any group to be a part of, the 12 was that group. If there was any group that you could chalk up and say, hey, give me some some names of the followers of Jesus. Give me some guys who followed Jesus with their, their whole heart and their whole life. If you're to walk up to someone who was walking after Jesus, hey, tell me some of the leaders in this, this group. This would be the guy, right? This would be the group, right? You're, you're part of the twelve. You're part of this inner circle. Surely you're one of the faithful followers of Christ. But being a part of the group does not save you. Being a part of the religious group does not save you. As you look at your relationship with Christ, as you think about what Christ is doing in your life and how He is working in your life, being a part of the religious group does not save you. Being a member of a church does not save you. I've known plenty of churches, and and ours is better than most, but there are plenty of churches out there that have uh, 200 people on a Sunday morning, and they have 800 people on their membership roll. That's a problem, right? A person who refuses to worship with other believers is not a Christian. A person who thinks that they can have a relationship with Christ out there on their own is is not a a believer. But guess what? Simply showing up doesn't save you. It doesn't fix it. Being a member doesn't fix it. Coming to church doesn't save you. Just just showing up on a a Sunday morning, whether it's all the time or, or even if it's infrequently, either way, it doesn't save you. Having your name on a certificate doesn't doesn't save you. Judas is the great example of that. Here he sat at the feet of Jesus day in, day out. He heard the teaching. He saw the miracles. He saw everything that Jesus did. He saw Jesus' heart. 
He knew the genuineness of Jesus' heart. And yet he's the one that runs off. People have tried to make excuses. Well, maybe he was pushing Jesus to go ahead and establish his kingdom. Maybe maybe he was just trying to to get Jesus to go ahead and and reveal who he was to everyone. He he didn't like Jesus being secretive. He he didn't like that, that Jesus wasn't pushing his kingdom forward on earth. Whatever the excuses that are made, they're invalid. Jesus says that he should not have been born. It would have been better for him to have not been born. As you evaluate your relationship with Christ, do you find your identity in the group that you are a part of? Do you find your identity in being a part of a religious group? Whether it's a church, whether it's a group of Christian friends, whether it's the ministries that you're involved in, whatever it is, is that where you find your identity? Is that where you have found your salvation? Maybe you've started coming to church in this new year. And it's never been important for you before, but, but for some reason in 2015, you, you've, you've decided, you, you've determined that you, you want to be in church. That's fantastic. I, I just shared a few minutes ago about our emphasis for 2016 and trying to get people to come to church. It's obviously not a bad thing, but it would be wrong of me to tell you that coming to church is going to solve the problem of your relationship with God. It's simply not enough to be a part of the group. We've got to be in Christ. We've got to repent. We've got to turn from our sin and follow Him. Becoming a member... It's not the solution. It's one of the reasons that, that here, to become a member, we've, we've got a, a little class that you go through with me where we talk about your salvation and we talk about the things that you believe. Why? Because becoming a member here will not save you. We want to make sure God's already done that. That He's already changed your heart. So as you evaluate your life this year, as you evaluate your relationship with Christ, make sure that you understand that being a part of a group will not save you. Only being found in Christ. Then second, we move on into verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Judas had given in to a desire for money. He had given in to a desire for power and whatever else he had given into. And he had entrusted himself to the religious leaders. He had entrusted himself to them to betray Jesus. He had accepted their money. 
And now he had turned over the Savior to this crowd. What we should remember as we look at this is that as we are evaluating our Christian life, as we're evaluating our relationship with Christ, we need to understand that the world never has good intentions for a Christian. The world never has good intentions for a Christian. Just as being a part of a group does not save, the world never has good intentions for a Christian. We don't know exactly what it was that has possessed uh, Judas to do these things. We know that, that Satan is influencing him. We know that God is at work in carrying out His sovereign plan of Christ's death for, death for the world. But, but what is it that has convinced Judas of these things? He's been seduced by the things of the world. And so he comes, and the things that he does when he encounters Jesus in the garden seem to be things that show affection toward Christ. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, this means teacher. It's a term of endearment that was used for Jesus. It was an honor for that title to be placed on someone. Because even though Jesus is not an officially sanctioned teacher in the Jewish religion, He is someone that obviously people who have heard teach very much respect. They understand that He knows the Scriptures. They understand that He has a a high view of the things of God. And so it would uh, be um, no surprise for one of His disciples to come up to Him and use this term of endearment. So He calls Him Rabbi. Something nice. He doesn't come up and call him something mean. He doesn't walk up to him and call him something nasty. He, he, he calls him this nice term. And then from there, he kisses him on the cheek. It's, a, again, a, another sign of affection. How interesting that he would have picked this. We're told that, that Judas picked this particular sign so that everyone else in the crowd, if they didn't know who Jesus was, they would know the guy that they have come there to arrest. And he uses a term of endearment and a sign of affection to betray Jesus. Now we know that that Christ already knew what was going on. It wasn't a surprise to him. He'd already pointed out and said, hey, the guy's coming to betray me. But, But why did Judas do these things? Why did he use these symbol, this term, again, of endearment, the sign of affection? Why did he do that? Well, the hope was for everybody gathered there, you know, for the other disciples and for Jesus himself, this would, this would kind of disarm them a little bit. They, they wouldn't think that this was something bad because, hey, there was Judas. There's Judas, our buddy. You know, he's our friend. We hang out with him every day. He travels with us. He's, he's a guy that we, 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 we love. And he's come to Jesus and he's using this term of uh, endearment, this sign of affection. This must be something positive. This must be something good. You know, he's hoping to catch them off guard so that they don't have the type of conflict that happens when the sword is pulled out and somebody loses their ear. Friends, the world does the same sort of thing to us. The world does the same sort of thing to Christians. 
we, we think about all of the, 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 um, the negatives and we think about all of the uh, ways in which Christians are, are smeared in, in media and things like this and, and uh, definitely the ways in which the media tries to portray all Christians as, as, as crazy and as, as kooky and, and things like that. It happens constantly if you watch the media. But if you look, there are plenty of times when the world loves to speak friendly toward Christians. To give you an example, just this past week, uh, John Piper, who is a respected uh, pastor, retired now in, um, in Minneapolis, wrote uh, an article uh, that was... Uh, I very much disagree with it. He's very anti-gun, very disappointing to read that uh, from him. Um, But he wrote this lengthy article, and it got a lot of play on on the internet and things like that. Well, the Washington Post, which is an extremely left-wing media organization, picked it up, and they printed it, and they loved it. I mean, just all kinds of great things to say about it, and, and, and they have apparently limits on the amount of, of things that they will print, the length of article they will print. They threw all of that out because they had this evangelical pastor who had written something that they very much agreed with, and so they wanted to say nice things about it to try to push their agenda. This is the type of thing the world will do. The world will say sweet things to Christians. The world, especially you look when, we, uh, when Christians do things that are charitable, oh, those things will be talked up, those things will be pushed, and those things will be uh, out there. But not because they're uplifting the name of Christ, but because the world wants to convince you that, that they're your friend. The world desires greatly to convince you that they're your friend. These Chief priests and scribes and elders had no doubt convinced Judas that they were his friend. Judas and this mob comes attempting to convince uh, Jesus and his disciples that they are friendly toward them. But friends, the world does not have good intentions for a Christian. It simply doesn't. No, no matter how much sweet talking is happening, no matter how much they try to win you over, the world does not desire good things for you because what you believe as a Christian is in stark contrast to the things that the world believes. The world wants you to follow it. The things of this world desire your heart. And if your heart belongs to Christ, those things will never be compatible. It will never work. And so as you look at your heart and as you look at your relationship with Christ, have you allowed the things of this world to speak into your life much more than they should be? Are you allowing them to speak into your life at all? Are the desires of the flesh directing your heart? Some examples. Again, we think about Christmas, we think about how Christmas has become all about material things, material possessions. Is that more important to you, the material possessions of this world, than the things of Christ? 
Is it more important to you to have a nicer car or a bigger home than to do the things Christ has called you to do? If so, as you examine your relationship with Christ, could it be that the world is speaking into your heart, the world is influencing your life, and as it does, the voice of Christ is being choked out? Oh, it looked good when Judas comes up to Jesus, wraps his arms around him, says, Rabbi, teacher, gives him a kiss on the cheek. He greets his teacher and his friend, but the purpose is only to betray him. exactly what Jesus does with Judas. Friends, that's what the world will do to us in a heartbeat. If we do not keep focused on Christ, quickly the world will swoop in and speak into our life. If we leave places in our life where we are not allowing Christ to speak, the world will speak to those areas and we will be enticed. We will follow. We will listen. There's nothing you can do about the year that has gone by. And there are very few changes you can make in your life on this late date in December. But as you look ahead, if you're able to look back and see those places where the world is having influence, you can then look ahead and begin to refocus your life on Christ. To step away from the things of this world. To understand. It would do us all good to simply begin to understand that the world does not have good intentions for a Christian. It would do us good. To have that at the forefront of our mind as we are making decisions, as we're thinking about uh, the things in our life that are important, that we would understand that what this world has is not for us. We are not living for this world. We are living for the eternity ahead that God has prepared for us. Two important things that we can remember about our relationship with God. Being part of this group does not save and the world has no good intentions for us. Judas would have done well to have learned that. He would have done well to have seen that demonstrated in Christ's life. But even in that, Christ demonstrates two things for him. Two things. Two things that he has missed. Two things we should evaluate. And then here are the two things that Christ has demonstrated for Judas and for us. Think about this walk that they're about to take. It's not recorded for us in the Scripture, but there's a walk from where Jesus is arrested to where he is put on trial. Can you imagine Judas taking that walk with Christ? 
you know, the disciples, they scatter. We see that. Everyone runs away. They're gone. But, but Judas is taking this walk with an arrested Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane to his trial. I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe nothing good. Maybe he's thinking about how he's going to spend the money. I don't know. But look at what Jesus does. For Judas and for everyone that's gathered there during this journey. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. During this journey from Gethsemane to the cross, Gethsemane to Jesus' trial, we see first here that the Lord keeps his promise though he is poorly treated. Remember, it's one of the twelve that comes to betray him. It's one of the twelve who turns his back on him. It's one of the twelve who turns him into the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. It's one of the twelve, one of those who apparently or at least allegedly had acted like he loved him. But isn't it good news for us this morning as we're thinking about our relationship with Christ over this past year, as we're thinking about our relationship with Christ going forward, that Christ keeps His promise though He is poorly treated. They come and arrest Him. They lead Him off. And Jesus asked them a Puzzling question, why did you come here and arrest me as if I was a robber? Why did you come in the middle of the night and sneak in and arrest me while no one is looking? I've been in the temple with all of you guys every day, day in and day out, day in and day out. You could have arrested me there. But no, you come and you arrest me as if I'm some type of, of common thief that you got to sneak up on because he's in hiding. Jesus says, I'm not hiding. Again, I, I've been hanging out with you guys in the temple. I've been there teaching. I've been there speaking every day. Any point in time you could have done this, save yourselves the walk out here. But that's how the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus happened. There's nothing noble about it. He wasn't arrested in public for, for all to see where he could make one last statement to, to rally the crowd to his cause, but he's arrested in the garden in the middle of the night like a common criminal. But he ends verse 49 by saying, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus keeps his promise though he has been poorly treated. 
He keeps His promise here because the purpose of His life was to go to the cross and die in our place. And so He allows them here to lead Him away. It's not as if they have control over the situation. It's not as if they can, they can somehow take Him by force, but He goes willingly. Even though they have come to Him and treated Him poorly, even though uh, Judas has betrayed Him, though He has always shown love and affection to Judas, He has been betrayed by Judas, and yet He goes willingly. Why? To fulfill the Scriptures. Because He keeps His promises. Jesus always keeps His promises. God had promised from the beginning all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when mankind falls into sin, God had promised that He would send a Savior for mankind. And so Jesus now goes to the cross to fulfill the Scriptures. As you reflect on your life over this last year, have there been any times when you treated Jesus poorly? Have there, have there been some times when you just didn't do a very good job in your relationship with Christ? Have there been some times when you have betrayed Christ for the things of this world? I would imagine so. If you haven't, then you probably didn't need to come to church this morning. Because you really didn't need it. Because you're pretty much perfect. And this whole thing is... Matter of fact, maybe we're talking about you. When it says Jesus here, maybe it should be your name. But that's not the case. Because, you know, I know you people. And the people of you don't know, I can take a guess that you're not Jesus. And you're not perfect. And so you need a Savior. And as a person who needs a Savior, there's going to be times when you sell out that Savior for the things of this world. When you sell out the Savior for your own sinful desires. Well, there's good news when that happens. Because it's happened this year. And guess what? The unfortunate news is it will probably happen next year. If not, it's because we all gathered here to do your funeral. But the good news, through your betrayal and through your mess-ups and through your uh, inconsistencies and through your sinful desires is that He keeps His promises. See, in this story, and I, I don't want to spiritualize this because that's just not the way to treat the text, but if, if you were going to spiritualize this, in, the, in this story, you're one of those crowd guys with the sword and the club and you're hauling Jesus off. See, the, the, the crazy thing about what Jesus does here is He goes willingly to the cross to die for the very people holding these clubs and swords to haul Him away. He goes to the cross so that those people can have an opportunity at salvation. Those people have the opportunity to have a relationship with Christ because He is obedient and keeps His promise. So the good news for you is as 2015 is coming to an end and you're looking back on your relationship with Christ, if there's some things there where you did not live up to God's standard, He was still keeping His promise. 
Even when you are out following sin and following the things of this world, He was holding tightly to your salvation. He was keeping it for you. Holding on to it. You think about the stories, probably some Hallmark movies. I know all those are on this year. And I'm sure in one of them there's a plot that goes something like this. And I've not seen them, but I'm guessing. There's some guy that's ran off and done something dumb. And he's come back home. And he's found that when he gets back home, not only do his parents receive him, but he goes to his room and they've kept it for him just like it was. If not, you're, feel free to send that to Hallmark and that'll be on TV next Christmas because it's, you know, I'll be home for Christmas part 53 or whatever. But isn't that what God does? When we run off, when we mess up, when we go do our own thing, we come back and He welcomes us. But not only does He welcome us, He's kept it there for us, safe and secure. 1 Peter chapter 1 promises us that. He's got our salvation and He's keeping it for us. He's holding on to it so it can't be messed up. The good news if 2015 has not been that grand, if you're beginning to think about those things as I'm talking and you're looking back at the places that you have failed him miserably this year, the good news is he's still holding on to that salvation. It's still there. It's still yours. He's still protecting it for you because he keeps your promise. Judas, he had no salvation. He broke the relationship with Christ because it just wasn't there. It wasn't a saving faith. He doesn't have that. But God holds on to promises for us. Now look, the last thing, verse 50, 52, they all left him. So one of them sticks around for a moment. We see here in verse 51, 52, some New Testament scholars think that, that this is uh, Mark, uh, John Mark, who um, wrote Mark's gospel. This is him maybe inserting himself in here just a little bit. Maybe, maybe not. Not really relevant to whether he is or not, but they leave him. He says, hey, let's go. Scriptures are going to be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth on his body. Why? I, I don't know. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Why does this dude run off with no clothes on? I don't know. If I had a good answer for that, you know, I could probably write a book that people would be very interested in. Uh, but I don't have any clue. Don't know why this dude just... One, why he only has a linen cloth on to start with, and then why he just runs off with no clothes on. But, it's a pretty good indication of how deserted Jesus is. Jesus alone, and only him, goes to offer salvation. Jesus Alone, The Lord alone goes to offer salvation. They all left Him. They all run off. They're scared. We'll see 
we'll see soon Peter denying Christ. I didn't, I didn't know the guy. Hey, you were with it. I don't. What are you talking about? I don't know this guy. His desertion, it was absolute. It was complete. We read later when he's on the cross about John being there with his mother. We see there are a few people gathered, especially a few ladies that are gathered. But here, when he's arrested, he's by himself. He's alone. He goes to this trial. He goes arrested. He's, he's beaten, horrifically beaten, tortured for hours. And he does so by himself. Because he does this by himself, then he alone, he alone is worthy of our worship. If there had been someone else who, who came along and helped Jesus get through that, we, we might have special affection for that person. Hey, that person helped Jesus get us our salvation. Yeah, you know, we would probably have like pictures of them hanging up or, or we would have special songs that were sung to the person who had helped Jesus win us our salvation. But there is nobody else. There is no one else. No one else goes with Christ. No one goes and helps Him through this horrific ordeal. No one goes and assists Him as He is being tried. He has no lawyer who stands there pleading His case. He has no one to help Him get up when He falls down as He is being beaten. There's, there's, there's no one. All of the torture. There's no one. As He hangs there on the cross... No one helps him off. See, hangs there on the cross. There's, there's no one to, to step in and take his place because there's no one worthy. And so with all of that, he therefore should be the sole object of our worship. Remember, the, the world... The world does not love us. The world does not have good intentions for us. So we should not worship the world. And unfortunately, we have come to a point, especially in the history of our country, and other countries have gotten there at different points in other societies, and we're not worried about them. In our country and society, we have now taken on full worship of the world. We think about this month as we're thinking about our missionaries that serve overseas. We pray for them around this time of the year. We think about them and they're going to so many areas that are dark. So many areas that have never heard the gospel of Christ. Yeah, the sad reality is that in the United States there are now places where people have never heard the gospel. There will come a time, and it may not be in any of our lifetimes, but 
But if the Lord does not return, there will come a time when other places are sending missionaries back here by the thousands. It already happens, by the way. But it will begin to happen in great numbers. Because increasingly, people here worship the world and not Christ. Not that it hasn't always happened. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's always been worship of the world, worship of false idols. But we're seeing it increase so rapidly. As Christians, what we must remember is that our object of worship is Christ. He alone won us salvation on the cross. He alone earned us the right to be called children of God. It took His death and His death alone for us to have salvation. And so as we examine the year, the one behind, the one ahead, what other things are we worshiping? What other things are owning our heart? See, it is obvious as we look here that Judas, he was worshiping something else. He had heard Peter say before, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was a, an indication of the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped. I wonder if we examine our hearts are there other things that we are worshiping? Are we worshiping the things of this world? Are we worshiping ourselves many times? Christ went alone to worship. I mean, to, to, to die. And therefore, we should worship Him alone. Think about, think about the year that you've had. Think about all the things that went on 360 days or so at this point. Ups and downs, good days, bad days, times when you were happy, times when you were sad, times when you felt really close to Christ, times when you felt far away. What are some things that you need to change for next year? If you are going to worship Christ and Him alone. If you are going to turn from the enticements of this world and focus on the Savior who when abandoned by everyone, when when treated so poorly, went to the cross for you when you had no love and desire for Him. He, he went to the cross and he could, he could be there and look down at, at, at this myriad of people who had treated Him so badly. All of these people who had, had punished Him 
though he deserved nothing, who had beaten him and tortured him. He looked at all of these people and he said, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. If he could do all of that for you, what are some things that you need to do differently, not starting in 2016, but starting today? Things that you need to be doing differently to respond appropriately to the love that Christ has shown you. There's some things, aren't there? If you think about it. If you spend a moment just thinking about it, there's some things, right? Again, I know you're not perfect. So that means there's some things. There's some things that you know God wants for your life. There's some things you're doing that God has said, do not do these things. They are not worthy of my children. There's some other things that God has said, these are important. These are important for our relationship. And you've neglected them. You have the capacity to think about these things. God calls us in His Word to think about these things. He went alone to die for you on the cross. You, therefore, should make Him the sole object of your worship. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we have come into your house and your presence this morning. God, help us as we wrap up this year, as we begin to look at a year that is ahead. God, help us to see the places in our life where we are not making you the object of our worship. God, help us to understand that our relationship with you comes through our membership in your kingdom. God, help us to sever ties in this world with this world so that we can worship you and you alone. Heavenly Father, this morning I know that in In this room, there are people who no doubt have been hurting, no doubt been struggling. God, I just ask that you would speak to their hearts this morning. Help us all to find the calm assurance that comes through the relationship that we have with Christ. God, we pray that 2016 would be a year where we would give you honor and glory and praise as we never have before. God, that we would serve you faithfully that we would set aside the things that God uh, calls us to struggle, the the things that, that ensnare us and entrap us, and God, that we would follow you with hearts and lives, God, that are dedicated fully to having you as the object of our worship. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for all that you're doing in our heart and our life. And God, we pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen.
I want to invite you to stand with me as we get ready to sing. How is it that God is wanting to make 2016 a different year for you in your relationship with Him? What is it that you have held back? What is it that you have continued to do? Whatever it is, what is it that has damaged your relationship with Christ? What is it that has gone unfulfilled in 2016? He has called you to it, but it has not happened. What, what is it? God is calling us to renew our relationship with Him. To be recommitted to what He is doing in our world. To be recommitted to what He wants to do in our heart and life. The sad thing for Judas is that he had seen all of the great things God has done. And he ignored those things. You and I have witnessed the great things that God has done and He calls us to respond. What are some of those things that need to change for this upcoming year? What's God speaking to you about? Maybe this morning you need to come and pray that, that He would help you and guide you in 2016. Maybe there's just things that you know, hey, I can't do anything about it right here. I've got to go from this place and make some changes that God has called in my life. Whatever it is, this morning would you respond to God's Word as we sing?